welcome to Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast. Hello, my name is Chuck. Today we cross the Atlantic Ocean to the English countryside to join Nick Anderson, who has flown several aircraft after discovering flying in gliders in a Slingsby T-21. Nick has flown F-18s with the Royal Air Force, as well as flying many other aircraft. Nick, I'm excited for you to tell your aviation story today. How did your aviation story begin? Well, my aviation story began really, I guess, with my father, who was an airline pilot. Um, So we kind of uh, lived uh, aviation in our family to a certain extent. Now, my eldest brother, he became a ground engineer. Uh, My middle brother ended up joining the army. I was the only one that had any real interest in flying. And I used to try and follow my dad's flights around. I used to love going up with mum to Gatwick Airport and see him off. And then uh, I used to try and flick an old radio I had uh, across to pick him up on the radio as he departed. Uh, um, So uh, that was really, I think, my main motivation. Uh, And uh, I was so keen that um, I joined an organization really designed to bring young people into the world of aviation. And it still exists. It's called the uh, Air Training Corps, uh, more uh, commonly called just the Air Cadets in the UK. And I know similar organizations exist around the world for uh, youth. And although it has a military bent in that we wore uh, old Air Force uniforms, sort of World War II vintage stuff, good heavens, I seem to remember that my first uh, shirts had detached collars. That's how old-fashioned they were. But uh, uh, there was no obligation to uh, move on into the military, although that's inevitably what I did. Um, Really, it was just for air-minded kids who uh, wanted to get more involved. Uh, The Air Training Corps was for boys, and the Girls Venture Corps was for girls. Eventually, they became amalgamated into a single organization. But that really was uh, my first taste. And... We used to go down uh, sometimes a couple of times a week to our squadron headquarters, which was really a set of old World War II Nissan huts in the local town. And uh, we would be lectured about uh, various aspects of flying. We'd learn how aircraft flew, how all the controls worked, um, amongst other things uh, to do with aviation. And we did a lot of uh, drill and other bits and bobs. We had uh we could practice shooting uh, with rifles all that kind of stuff uh it was really a hangover from the organization that had been brought about during the second world war to try and give younger people a, a more operational role to help out the military air cadets used to help out on airfields refueling and rearming aircraft that sort of thing and it was still going on and still very well supported Every now and again, we would get the opportunity to go flying. And although a lot of our just um, air experience flights were done in uh, old chipmunks, uh, powered aircraft, there was also uh, an opportunity to go gliding. And that really was my door into aviation, certainly as becoming a pilot. A very good foundation starting out in gliders for sure. Yeah, I was intrigued by the whole concept. I mean, uh, to be fair, um, Chuck, the the sort of gliders you fly, uh, <laughs> they, were, they were very different 
Um, so we uh, we would start off on a thing called the uh, Slingsby Tutor, where the T31 tandem tutor. It was uh, you sat one behind the other, open cockpits. It was made of wood and covered in canvas, and um, it had a a glide ratio akin to a brick. So um, it uh, <laughs> had a glide ram. The maximum glide ratio was about 18 and a half to one. You know, it was pretty chilly in the uh, colder weather because, uh, you know, there was very little protection, just uh, uh, a little plastic windshield in front of your face. Uh, otherwise, you were open to the elements. Uh, and uh, everything was... Uh, um, winch launched so we'd be uh, winched up you get to oh, about 800 perhaps 1000 feet and uh, you'd have just enough height to do a nice neat little circuit and then uh, plonk it back down on the ground again and if uh, for some reason uh, you the little spoilers didn't work because of its appalling glide ratio you weren't going to um, fly out of the airfield <laughs> you would just land a long way away <laughs> <laughs> so we used to get uh, flights on those uh, uh and it was it would just be a you know perhaps a saturday or a sunday we'd you know, get one perhaps two the rest of the day we used to be given duties such as making tea for the instructors or just standing on a wingtip you know the way you do when uh, you're uh, just looking after the aircraft uh, waiting for it to have its turn to fly and someone has to either put a tire on the wingtip or it's much uh, safer to put a, a cadet on the wingtip with his foot on it, <laughs> making sure the airplane doesn't <laughs> blow away. So uh, and we'd do that. And then uh, when given instructions, you know, we'd lift the wing up and hold the aircraft level and then run with it and watch it get airborne. And then after a, uh, a day of doing that, we'd get our chance for a couple of flights perhaps. But it was uh, always great fun. And I slowly built up experience flying uh, those kind of experience flights. And then I got uh, a very lucky opportunity to do one of the gliding courses that the uh, cadets offered. So there were there was a basic course uh, and then an advanced course. If you got onto the advanced course, you went uh, solo, which was brilliant. Uh, so by that time, I was uh, also flying the other main glider they had, which was uh, also built by Slingsby, a British company. Um, so I don't suppose you're familiar, or possibly you are. The Slingsby T21 was called the Zedberg, and it was a side-by-side, again, open cockpit, big, thick wing, uh, quite a impressive wingspan. Um, so it had a span of about 27 feet, I think. Uh, and uh, it uh, had a slightly better glide ratio, so you could get 21 to 1 out of that. Uh, and it was uh, also aerobatic. You know, you could, uh, well, one of our instructors used to sort of hold the gliding school record of about, I think, 13 loops off a winch toe, continuous. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know. It was <laughs> remarkable. The last loop looked uh, impressively low, but he had enough speed coming out of it to do a quick jondel and then land back on the airfield. So we're all very impressed. Oh, and, my goodness. Yeah, that must have been <laughs> pretty crazy to watch. <laughs> absolutely, particularly as a as a youngster. After that advanced course, uh, I was very lucky to be offered a chance to uh, join the gliding school as one of their staff cadets. 
So they had a permanent adult staff of either officers or civilian instructors who would come along at the weekend and do all the instructing and training. And then they had a number of staff cadets who uh, were youngsters like me. And how old would I have been then? Uh, 17, 18. And we did all the sort of dog spotting. So, you know, we, I used to hitchhike from my house down to our base, which was a beautiful old World War II airfield called Tangmere. And Tangmere actually had quite a history. So uh, it was used uh, during the Second World War. Uh, as a fighter base, you know, it was a very important base during the Battle of Britain. And in fact, um, the uh, ace uh, wing commander, Douglas Bader, the uh, famous pilot, fighter pilot who had no legs, he uh, flew f uh, or led the, uh, the Tangmere wing of uh, squadrons from there during the Battle of Britain. Um, Johnny Johnson, one of our most impressive fighter aces in uh, the Second World War, uh, he flew from there. And uh, as indeed, uh, we had an, uh, an American uh, pilot who flew for the Royal Air Force from there, a fine chap called Billy Fisk. Uh, and uh, he had come across to uh, England just before the war started. And he, um, he claimed he was a Canadian so that uh, he would be allowed to fly in the Royal Air Force because, of course, uh, at that time, America was a neutral country. And uh, he um, earned his RAF wings and uh, flew out of Tangmere, sadly, uh, on one of his first Battle of Britain missions. His uh, aircraft, his Hurricane, took a hit in a petrol tank and caught fire. And he got the aircraft back, uh, but he was pretty badly injured. He had to be carried from the aircraft. And uh, oh, very sadly, he uh, got sepsis, got caught a blood infection and died in hospital. But I'm always very proud to know that we had people from all around the world helping us out during the Second World War. So it was a, it was a base of uh, great history. I love being there. It wasn't operational anymore. It, it looked pretty run down. No one lived there, really. We just used it as a storage place and an airfield to fly from. When we had spare time, we used to walk around and look at the old buildings and try and imagine what it was like there in the Second World War. But um, the, the duties we had were numerous, and th this is really what it was all about for me as a, as a youngster, getting my teeth into flying. So we would uh, hitchhike down on a Friday, and first thing Saturday morning, we would uh, open up the hangars. This was before the staff even arrived. And we'd uh, pull out the uh, half a dozen or so gliders that we uh, had available. And then uh, we give them all a daily inspection, check them all out. And then when the staff came and uh, the chief instructor had decided what direction we were going to fly that day, we would um, man up all the Land Rovers and uh, tow the aircraft out uh, to the takeoff position. We'd uh, tow the winches out, uh, pull the cables up, put the uh, control caravan in position, uh, put the kettle on and be uh, all ready to uh, commence the day's flying once uh, everybody had arrived. And uh, then during the day, we would actually, uh, as youngsters, we would be driving the winches, pulling the aircraft aloft. And uh, then if someone uh, landed not quite in the perfect spot, we'd uh, uh, grab a Land Rover uh, with a trolley on the back and drive out to where the aircraft was and pull the aircraft up onto the trolley and 
tie it in place and recover it back to the flight line, all ready for uh, the next trip. Uh, and for our uh, pains, we uh, got a few extra flights. In fact, we were gradually taken through a series of uh, training courses uh, as a staff cadet until we became experienced enough to uh, start flying uh, air experience flights for other cadets. So you'd have me as an, I guess I would have been 18 by then, sitting in one seat and a 13-year-old um, youngster looking wide-eyed and very worried in the other seat and we would fly them for their little experience uh, flights around the sky and hopefully bring them safely back again. So that was kind of my weekend duties uh, for oh, two or three years. I used to do that almost every weekend without fail because, of course, I just loved the idea of flying. Yeah, you know, when you hitchhike to go fly, that, that gives me an idea of how much you wanted to go fly. And, and most people you run into that are in aviation, they do have a lot of enthusiasm, especially, you know, when you're just getting into it. Yeah, you do just about anything to get in the air, that's for sure. Absolutely. We we used to have uh, old Air Force camp beds uh, uh, in a hangar where we used to get on Friday night and we'd bed down on those uh, and then, uh, you know, make a very rough uh, breakfast in the morning out of whatever we'd brought with us. Um, and then basically uh, work the whole weekend solidly. Uh, and then the cadets that were on a course, because we conducted uh, flying courses for other cadets, uh, we used to take them to the nearest RAF base to uh, give them accommodation overnight. And that was another quite famous RAF base called Thorny Island, uh, actually on an island sticking out from the south coast about a 45, 30 minute uh, drive in these old Land Rovers we uh, used to drive, uh, which had no synchromesh on first and second. That's how old they were. Uh, I don't know what mark they were, but some Land Rover expert will probably let you know. And uh, then we bring them back at the end next morning, set everything up and uh, off we go again. But I have to say they were magical days um, learning to fly those aircraft because they weren't, the simplest of airplanes to fly. Well, I guess they were, but they, you were all a bit exposed to the elements. Uh, um, there was just an altimeter to tap uh, and uh, to give you a height, and they had a very basic uh, variometer, just a little green bead and a tube, glass tube, uh, an airspeed indicator, and uh, your turn and slip indicator was a piece of string tied to the pitot tube. So uh, I'm, I'm sure there are still plenty of aircraft around with those kind of things. But I think when you're learning to fly and you're learning to fly um, without the aid of fancy instruments, gliding is possibly the most, the purest and best way. Uh, and certainly you learn how to conserve your energy and how to control the aircraft because uh, sadly in a glider you can't go around. Yeah, there's no go-arounds, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> now, um, we used to uh, uh, occasionally get uh, some reasonable soaring weather, and uh, although I would never describe uh, um, the tandem uh, T-31 as an aircraft I would take soaring, certainly the... Um, uh, the Zedberg uh, could soar reasonably well. It could certainly thermal very well. Um, and uh, I even got as far. I'm looking now. I've, I've got here beside me my 
Federation Aeronautique International now, uh, issued by the Royal Aero Club gliding certificate, which I guess would have been my gliding license. And it was uh, dated, oh, I've got my number here, I, a five-digit number, I expect there's a few more here. Uh, I got my A and B gliding certificates in 1971 and my C certificate, my bronze C, uh, the same year. And uh, I finished gliding in 1973, just before I joined the Air Force. So I'm, I'm rather delighted to have this old document. But occasionally we would uh, get the chance to go on a sort of summer camp uh, with the gliding staff to a beautiful soaring site uh, near Cheshire, the Cheshire Gorge. And uh, we, there we would fly quite an interesting airplane because uh, the uh, cadets had a few single-seaters and they were uh, much treasured because there weren't very many of them uh, and they were called the prefect, uh, but they were basically uh, Grunau babies. Uh, and I think uh, a lot of them were actually, uh, I'm trying to think of a suitable word, requisitioned from uh, Germany at the end of the Second World War and brought back to England and then given to the cadets uh, to fly. So, uh, yeah, we used to fly this little single-seat prefect, which was a delightful little glider. It didn't have any great performance uh, compared with the other two types. It was oh. so much fun being in a single-seat aircraft. Oh, single-seaters, I remember the first time I... I flew uh, the my first single seater, the 126, which is the only single seater I've flown as of right now. But it's so much fun to fly and just getting up on the ridge and doing some nice ridge soaring, you know, a couple hundred feet above the trees is is an amazing experience. Oh yeah, I we we uh, had to be kept a close eye on because um, landing out was a difficult. The terrain around there wasn't brilliant. Uh, and the airfield itself was sort of on a uh, side of a hill, so it wasn't the easiest place to even get back on. Um, and to be fair, I don't ever remember doing much successful ridge soaring because the ridge that we had beside this airfield was not orientated uh, in favor of the prevailing wind. It was like at 90 degrees to it, so you had to have quite an unusual and strong wind to be able to use the ridge. So inevitably, we'd be up there for a week, and we'd do some thermaling and just fly circuits and the usual sort of thing, uh, and no one got very much. Uh, but uh, I think I managed a 15-minute flight or whatever, which wasn't bad in those days, and certainly... Um, for us who were used to doing two and three minute flights, it felt like forever. Where did your journey take you after you after you left there and you went into the Air Force? Well, I more or less um, left the uh, Air Cadets and the gliding school uh, the same year that I joined the Air Force. So at the end of that summer of 1974, I'd, I'd actually got a job for a year working at a flying school, uh, but I still used to try and glide at the weekends. And uh, the gliding, uh, sorry, the flying school was where I'd done a flying scholarship. So by that time, I had been given a scholarship to learn to fly uh, a powered aircraft. And because of my gliding experience, I was uh, allowed to uh, get my 
uh, private pilot certificate and got a reduction in hours requirement. So at the end of that course, which didn't normally uh, get to that stage, I got a, um, a PPL and went to work for that very school, uh, cleaning toilets and um, you know brushing out the hangar and taxiing the, the Cessnas, the 150s and 172s out onto the line every day and putting them away at bed. Uh, at night, washing one uh, every day. You know, you take one off the line and give the dirtiest one a, a, a big uh, scrub down, hoover the carpets and man the reception and various other jobs. So that was kind of what I was doing uh, to try and get a, uh, into the civil world. But when I realized that, nah, this is never going to work because I wasn't getting hours fast enough. I wasn't really getting anything. I was learning how to do a lot of very tedious jobs. Uh, I decided that uh, perhaps the Air Force, who had shown an interest in recruiting me, um, would uh, uh, allow me to join. And it was uh, uh, through my gliding experience and my flying scholarship that uh, I basically uh, used as a stepping stone to get into the Royal Air Force and then progress on with my uh, Air Force career. And when you joined the Air Force, what did you start flying? Uh, yeah, we uh, we started on, uh, funny old thing, the, the very aircraft I had been flying with, the cadets, the Chipmunk. Um, we'd done our air experience flights on those and we got a few hours on those and then uh, on to a little jet trainer called the Jet Provost. There were two marks, well, there were the Mark III and the Mark V. The Mark III was unpressurized. The Mark V was uh, for the advanced part of the course and uh, was uh, a bit more powerful, pressurized cockpit, uh, looked a bit sleeker, certainly flew a lot better. So when we got to the stage where we needed to do um, you know, lots of high-level work, that's, that's the aircraft of choice, and all. Our, uh, we started learning close-formation flying. Uh, that was about a year's course. Uh, and at the completion of that, uh, after a short break, because there was a bit of a backlog in the system, uh, I went on to fly the, the lovely little Nat trainer uh, that was a tiny, delightful little aircraft built by a company called Folland. And uh, we, the Air Force, had a bunch of them uh, at uh, their various uh, bases, but mainly at RF Valley, uh, the north of Wales. And that was the advanced jet training base. Um, that little aircraft uh, was the one that was flown by the Red Arrows, the formation, RAF formation team, for many years, and uh, had a, had a fabled uh, roll rate uh, of um, over 500 degrees a second. So you could really, uh, it was really quite a nippy little aircraft, and uh, very uh, uh, great fun, very fast, supersonic, great fun to fly. And from there, we progressed on to the venerable Hawker Hunter, which was by that time relegated to a training role. And uh, whereas the Nats were all two-seaters, uh, when we flew the Hunter, we trained up and got cleared in the two-seater, which was a very cramped little side-by-side cockpit. Uh, but we did most of our flying out of single-seaters. And I have to say, flying a single-seat uh, fighter, uh, even albeit uh, one that was pretty much um, you know, obsolete, uh, was fa fantastic. I loved that. And it was at the completion of our weapons training on the Hunter that we were then allocated to our frontline airplanes. And I was lucky enough to get to fly the beautiful uh, McDonnell Douglas F4 Phantom, uh, at least the British version of, uh, which had uh, Royal, uh, sorry, uh, 
uh, Rolls-Royce engines. We had two different variants, the, the Navy one, which uh, when the Navy got rid of their carriers, the Air Force uh, carried on flying, and I was flying that variant most of the time, and uh, an RAF variant as well, which was slightly better equipped. Uh, and I did uh, oh, I did well over a 1,000 hours uh, on the Phantom, off and on. Flew the British Aerospace Hawk for a bit because... Uh, I had to go back and do my penance uh, as a flying instructor uh, for four years. So I went back to Valley, the place I'd trained on on the NAT, and uh, had to sit in the back of a British Aerospace Hawk trainer, uh, which was actually a delightful little airplane to fly, uh, and um, coach uh, the, the latest generation of pilots through their training um, before going back to the Phantom and then... Uh, uh, after becoming a weapons instructor, I was lucky enough to get sent out to uh, work with the Australian Air Force for a few years, uh, flying F-18s. I did three years uh, in the most beautiful country I think I've ever lived in, uh, on the west, uh, well, my father lived on the west coast of Australia. I, the my base was on the east coast. Um, Actually, it's a huge distance. I didn't get to see him very often. So we were just north of Sydney on the east coast of a base there called Williamtown. And uh, I flew there with 77 Squadron and uh, had a fine time. Came back to the Royal Air Force uh, after that and uh, spent three years on the fighter variant of the Tornado, the F3, uh, which is uh, now uh, out of service. Uh, and some would uh, say good uh, riddance. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't find that uh, a very impressive aircraft, having uh, spent three years flying uh, the F-18. Uh, but uh, it was uh, fine for what it was developed for, uh, and uh, that was uh, really the end of my military career. Uh, I came out and um, ended up uh, in the civil world, flying uh, for an airliner based in the United Kingdom who had uh, big four-engined uh, Airbuses, uh, as well as 747s, but I was flying the Airbuses. Uh, and uh, I'm just finishing a 25-year career with them. So I, I have to say I've had a, the most wonderful opportunities during my life to fly, uh, all of which were kicked off, really, uh, by uh, wooden canvas gliders and the joy that those aircraft and the uh, skills they instilled on, in me carried me through very well uh, for uh, what was, I suppose, about 45 years of professional flying. Well, congratulations. Congratulations on your retirement. Enjoy that for sure. Oh, well, I shall. Um, but uh, interestingly, although uh, I didn't really buy this house with that in mind, the, not far up the road from me is uh, an airfield called Lasham, and uh, it's quite a, a well-known gliding centre in England. Uh, and I am thinking seriously of uh, popping up there and uh, seeing what it might take to get back uh, in the air uh, in gliders. Uh, I haven't quite uh, got my, uh, I haven't quite got the urge yet. I haven't been out of flying long enough, <laughs> but I'm sure it will happen. Well, I would greatly encourage that. I, th I think that would be awesome if you could do that. Uh, so do I. They have a, uh, a vintage gliders club up there. So I think they've got a few of the old uh, wood and canvas machines that I used to uh, enjoy flying so much. 
uh, and get up to so many uh, terrible tricks that we used to play on each other and uh, on the instructors, uh, as well as doing some of the more exciting things because uh, the most exciting thing we ever did in those uh, gliders was the last flight of the day, which was to bring the gliders back to the hangars. Now, I don't know if this would normally occur on on civil glider sites, but uh, because uh, it was always a bit of a pain uh, dragging the aircraft the distance from where they were parked up on the flight line to get them back to the hangars, the last flight of the day we would land on the uh, concrete apron in front of the hangar and try and stop these gliders uh, right in the mouth of the hangar, and then we wouldn't have far to push them to get them inside. Now, this was always an interesting job because having spent the day landing on grass, which retarded the aircraft reasonably well, when you landed one of these little things on uh, concrete uh, with its little wheel, it used to roll along quite happily and show no signs of slowing down at all. Of course, not having any brakes uh, other than the air brakes, which weren't really very effective at low speed. The only way to slow the aircraft down was to tip it forward onto the, the skid that uh, sat in front of the wheel. And you had to be going just about the right speed so you had enough elevator effectiveness to get it to tilt forward onto the skid because if it sat back onto its tail, uh, that was it. You were going to probably career onwards and go straight past the hangar until you found something pretty solid to bring you to a, a halt. Um, or someone was brave enough to rush out and grab a wingtip and ground loop you to, a, <laughs> to an oh, ignominious oh, no. end. <laughs> <laughs> but that was always uh, a fun part of uh, the days flying, to uh, to get to do the hangar trip. They were always in uh, great demand, uh, and uh, we used to love doing them. I have a question for you because of something that I listen to and something that you produce, and that is Plane Tales. Can you tell me how you got into that and how that all started? Well, uh, yeah, it was by chance, uh, actually, Chuck. I'm so pleased you enjoy them. Uh, it's a little labor of love from me. Um, I, of course, was sending feedback into the airline pilot guy, uh, and that's kind of how I got uh, invited to join the team was because uh, I was pestering them with so much feedback. Jeff decided it was probably simpler just to have me on the show rather than continually have to answer all these questions. I was <laughs> so uh, uh, I, I've, I've been on the show a few times and I kind of thought I'm missing, I'm missing sending in feedback because uh, uh, so I said to him, look, now I'm on the show. Uh, do I have to stop sending feedback? And he said, no, of course not. You can sort of send in feedback. And it was just before Farnborough, uh, our first sort of international meetup at uh, the uh, air display at Farnborough uh, a few years back. And uh, I thought, well, I'll tell you what would be interesting would be to, for me to uh, sort of tell a few little stories about the history of Farnborough. Uh, because it goes back a long way, the Royal Aircraft Establishment is really an ancient uh, flying organization and experimental aircraft. Um, I don't know what, quite what you'd call them. They developed a lot of aircraft. They fixed a lot of problems. They uh, were always at the forefront of aviation technology, particularly in the wartime and the 50s and 60s. Um, great history, some uh, fantastic old airplanes there and uh, some lovely old sites. Uh, so I thought I'd 
tell those stories. And I, I sort of really enjoyed it, particularly uh, talking about um, Miss Tilly's orifice uh, and little stories like that. The, the lovely uh, Royal Aircraft Establishment lady engineer that worked out how to stop the Spitfire Merlin engine from cutting out under negative G. And she built a little uh, disc, which you fitted to the carburetor, had a hole in the middle. With that, it was a temporary fix, but uh, her her little disc um, cured the problem. Uh, and uh, she went round to all the fighter squadrons and she would have been a young lady uh, with all these fighter pilots and putting this little uh, disc with a hole in the middle uh, into all their carburetors. And uh, they thought, of course, she was marvellous because this was really a technical disadvantage of the Spitfire that uh, when you bunted the aircraft, uh, the motor would cut out. So if you wanted to follow Amesha Smith down or anyone down that was descending fast, you had to roll and pull after him, which was... Uh, took longer than it would just to push forward and bump. And so they thought it was marvellous. And they, uh, Miss Tilly uh, was her Christian name, and they called it, of course, Miss Tilly's Orifice. So um, I, a bit of a naughty uh, final pilot joke. Telling that story, I thought, well, there must be other interesting stories out there. That's been my quest, really, is uh, now to find out the interesting stories around the world uh, that not everyone may have heard of. I, I just kind of try and shy away from the better known incidents and accidents and aircraft and find those that people might be intrigued by because they've never heard of it before. Yeah, you're doing a great job. There's some really interesting stories you told that I hadn't heard. And I, I definitely look forward to that every time you come out with another one. Thank you. Plane tales, of course, can be f found on Airline Pilot Guide, but is there another way to find plane tales if maybe they just want to hear plane tales? Yes, uh, if you go to our website, airlinepilotguide.com, uh, and uh, the plane tales has a separate page, there there is a link there for an RSS feed, which allows you to download that as a separate uh, podcast, which will come into your podcast uh, uh, app on your phone uh, just like all the other podcasts so uh, you can you can use that rss feed to input into your uh, podcast app and away you go now i'm not an expert in setting that up but the, the other thing is you can just go to any because it's now a well-established uh podcast of its own right you can go to into your search function on any um a podcast app and just search for plain tales and uh, you should find me Oh, sounds great. Yeah, definitely worth checking out because, like I said, I've I've listened to, I think, just about every one of them. I think I have a, a few I have to catch up on, but, yeah, some good stuff. Th thanks for putting that out and continue to do that. I greatly enjoy those. Oh, it's my pleasure. I mean, there is a fascinating one coming out on the show tomorrow, which I only just finished a couple of days ago, uh, involving uh, the tragic story of a uh, T-33 shooting star pilot who uh, ended up uh, crashing. Uh, well, he ejected, his aircraft crashed in the Sierra Nevadas, and he survived for 54 days. Uh, and he eventually crawled out of the mountains and was found uh, and was hailed something of a hero until the newspapers took a turn against him and uh, basically wrecked his life. And if we think that uh, modern social media uh, is the uh, place to go to to have your character ruined, no, they were doing it way back in the 
fifties. So uh, it's a bit of a sad story, I'm afraid, um, particularly oh, since wow. all the accusations made against him were subsequently proved to be completely false. But sadly, by then he was dead. That is a sad story. Yep, but uh, but hear it in plain tales. It in all its glory. <laughs> Uh, we'll check that out for sure. Nick, if I were to ask you a flight, uh, you've had so many flights, but if I were to ask you a flight that really stands out in your mind, would you have one that particularly does? I think um, in the airliner world, it would have to be uh, my last approach into Hong Kong's Kai Tak Airport, uh, only really because uh, that approach was fairly notorious. And uh, it was only a few days before uh, Kai Tak's airport closed. And uh, it was our last chance to go down around the checkerboard and uh, in and land. Um, so that really was uh, a moment I thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, in the Air Force, uh, I have so many fabulous memories. Perhaps uh, uh, on the other side of the coin would be uh, a day that I took a tornado over to an island called Benbecula. Now, Benbecula is on the west coast of Scotland, and every year the RAF base there, which was a little radar unit, not very big, would invite uh, um, uh, pilots who they had controlled uh, during the year, uh, so fighter squadrons, to send a representative and an aircraft over, and they would uh, treat them to a, a lovely uh, formal dinner in their in their little uh, mess. So we did that and we probably had a few too many beverages. And the next morning, uh, the squadron commander said he wanted this aircraft back as soon as we could do it. Uh, so uh, myself and my navigator are a bit bleary eyed, uh, got airborne. And of course, being such a tiny uh, island and a very small community, they were very excited to have all these fighters there. They definitely wanted uh, us to beat the place up on our departure. Um, but I was a little bit uh, worse for wear. So when we got airborne, I managed to uh, get the aircraft in reasonable order, swept the wings all the way back, came pounding over the air airfield uh, nice and low and uh, making lots and lots of noise. And I pulled up into the vertical and uh, watched the cloud come towards me saying, oh, please, come on, because the idea is to try and disappear in a cloud before you run out of airspeed. As we went into the cloud, I thought, oh, thank the Lord for that. And uh, I started, uh, we were vertically upwards, so I just pulled the aircraft onto its back with the aim of getting level and then rolling out. Uh, and I reached in to um, move the wings forward because they were all the way back uh, because we were quite low, slow speed by then. Uh, in a blur, in a haze of um, too much uh, enjoyment, I must initially have slacked the flaps out instead of moved the wings down. Uh, and I went, that's funny, the wings haven't moved. Uh, luckily, the flaps didn't come out either because they're sort of held back by an interlock. Uh, but when I realized that I hadn't moved the wings forward because the aircraft was now in an incipient spin and uh, rotating at quite a high speed, and my navigator was shouting at me, asking me what the hell I was doing, uh, I moved the wings forward. Uh, and... Uh, the wings started coming forwards. Of course, the interlocks were then removed and the flaps started coming out. Well, we were too fast for the flaps to come all the way out. Of course, all the bells started going, indicating we had a, a flap overspeed. And uh, it took me some while to get the work out exactly what I'd managed to do and get the aircraft back into good order. 
But, uh, of course, having oversped the flaps, when we got back to the base, the boss wanted the aircraft, uh, but I had to tell him that, uh, I'm terribly sorry, boss, I've oversped the flaps, it's going to have to go in the hangar. <laughs> he was... He was not best to be pressed. So there you go. Let me warn you all: if you've uh, if you've had a, a lovely evening out with uh, lots of entertainment and uh, imbibing of uh, adult uh, beverages, best not to do a beat up the next morning. Nick, what kind of advice would you give someone if they're thinking about flying and they want some good advice, whether they should even start flying or not? What would you say to them? Well, you've really got to uh, have uh, a taster somehow. Um, go find your local airfield and chat to people. And, you know, look at the aircraft. Uh, if it excites you and the whole concept of flying looks attractive, uh, book yourself a, a um, you know, 30-minute taste of flight. Uh, and if you uh, are near a, um, a lovely gliding airfield i would recommend uh, you go up for a taster and a glider because uh, quite honestly if you want a the purest form of aviation and the most wonderful introduction to flying doing it in a glider is uh, very very special but uh, i think those of us who have got aviation in our blood will probably know it and will already be looking up into the sky watching aircraft go by wondering what that's all about will have probably taken an interest and uh, joining a, uh, a youth organization that has a bent towards flying or something similar will be a great starter. Um, just getting involved in uh, podcasts that uh, talk about flying and uh, encourage people, I think, is a, another great way to fill the hours. Um, but if you're interested in flying, I think it doesn't really matter. You'll find a way for sure. Absolutely. Uh, thanks the APG crew for me for uh, letting you out of your contract shortly so you could do this in interview. I greatly appreciate that. Oh, that's no problem at all. Uh, Jeff will send you uh, a small uh, invoice. I'm sure that won't be too much problem. It's usually only a few thousand dollars. Did, didn't oh, he no mention problem. that? Yeah, no. Oh, okay. That's good. I'm <laughs> glad, it, glad it's yeah, no you, problem. Yeah, you know, because... Because us podcasters, we make so much money, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. No, no, it's an absolute pleasure to uh, come and join you. Uh, and uh, I know that your show hasn't that been uh, going that long, but uh, I really admire the quality of your production and the effort you put into it. So congratulations, and uh, I look forward to listening to many more. Thank you, Nick. I greatly appreciate that. Always enjoy speaking with you. And thank you for listening. We're going to put in the show notes next podcast, Plane Tales. Also, you can check out the Airline Pilot Guy. He is one of the hosts on that show. We have some exciting stuff coming up for Soaring the Sky. We will be at Oshkosh this year. Oshkosh 2019. More information on the way about that. While you're online, you can also check out the SSA.org. There's information on how you can get your first glider flight. Also, some other information there about flying. Some great webinars they've been hosting, too. Lots of good information there. SoaringTheSky.com if you want to drop us a line. If you're a pilot you want to tell your story, you can do that right there. Or if you would just like to drop us a line and say hi, maybe even leave us some audio feedback where you're listening and what part of the country or what part of the world, we would love to hear from you. We hope you join us next time right here on Soaring the Sky. <laughs>